Turn to Psalm 138, continuing our study of the life of David. And I've mentioned before, in this study we're going to look at some psalms interspersed throughout the series. And today we're looking at Psalm 138. Hear the Word of God through His servant, King David. David writes, I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods I sing your praise. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul you increased. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord. For they have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord. For great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is high, He regards the lowly, but the haughty He knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, You preserve my life. You stretch out Your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and Your right hand delivers me. The Lord will will fulfill His purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. This is the word of the Lord. This psalm is the first of a series of eight psalms culminating in Psalm 145 that mark the end of David's contribution to the book of Psalms. He is responsible for almost half of the 150 Psalms penned in the book. In his closing words, which are recorded for us in 2 Samuel 22, uh, David is described as the sweet psalmist of Israel. And he says this in those closing words in 2 Samuel 22. He says, The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. David is a man who is inspired by God to be a mouthpiece of the divine, to reveal to his fellow men a word from God. Now, what is God's message through the psalmist in Psalm 138? Well, it may have something to do with what he writes or what is written in Psalm 137. Listen to the opening lines of the the previous psalm. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. When we remembered Zion, on the willows there we hung up our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. They're in a, a difficult place, aren't they? It's the exile. They've been kicked out of the land of promise. And you can imagine what they might be tempted to think. God has abandoned us. God has broken His covenant. God is not faithful to His promises. And then you come to Psalm 138. 
It's the response. It's God's Word to His people in times of dejection. He says, David says, I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods I sing your praise. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love, your covenantal love. You you keep your promises to your people. They are called to look to David in their time of dejection, time of rejection, and remember that God never forgets His promises, and He never forgets His people. As we look at this, uh, there's three things that I want to point out uh, in the psalm. First, I want you to see David as an evangelist in the opening verse. Second, I want you to see that the Lord keeps His promises His covenant promises. And then third, I want you to see how this relates to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, which also speaks of covenant promises, and how that can encourage us this day as we participate in this sacrament. So let us begin with the opening section, David the Evangelist. David writes, I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart before the gods... I sing your praises. What is David's purpose, his intended goal in this psalm? Well, I think verse 1 gives us the indication. He boldly shouts the praises of God. He gives thanks to God, we're told in verse 1, 2, and 4. He acknowledges God to be the source of all good in his life the reason for his success, success as king, and the reason why the kingdom of Israel was established during his reign. Now he gives us his audience as well. Who is he saying this to? Who is he communicating this glorious truth? Who is he praising God before? He says he's doing it before the gods. Now isn't that an odd statement to find in the Bible? The gods? Shouldn't we be speaking of the one true God? What's David talking about here? It's an odd expression. To whom does he refer? Well, there's a number of opinions among commentators, but I think the two leading opinions are these. It could refer to prominent leaders, such as foreign kings. You remember they often looked upon themselves in godlike ways. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon made an edict that people had to pray to him and bow down before him. Uh, we see that in the Roman world as well. Many of the Caesars were considered to be godlike or descendants of the gods. Another possibility is that it could be a reference to the foreign idols in the nations neighboring Israel. David is mocking them, essentially, saying, you, you foreign gods, you are really nothing. Let me tell you about my God. Let me praise my God in your presence. Now, uh, I think it may easily be a combination of those two thoughts, and especially when we link it contextually with Psalm 137, where the people are in a foreign land before pagan rulers and pagan gods. David boasts in the God of Israel before foreign pagan 
rulers, and idols. Now, I think there's a lesson in this for us, a very valuable lesson about how we approach those people who strongly reject Christian teaching. People in our country, our neighbors, our family members, our co-workers who don't agree with us, who don't share our belief system. How do we approach them? What can we learn from David about how to approach them? Should we avoid them? I think that, uh, unfortunately, is a practice taken up more and more by Christians, a hunker-down mentality. Let's just protect ourselves. Let's focus within. Let's retreat to it, toward our own little religious bubbles. Can we do that? Biblically, can we do that? No. Why? What's the Great Commission? Not protect truth and stick with yourselves and don't uh, mingle with the world, but go, go. Be light and salt to the world. We're called to engage the world, to be light in darkness. We're not, as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, we're not to put our light under a basket, but we're to let it shine before others. We are to be on mission. We are to be evangelistic. It's part of the basic fundamental work of the church. And I think we, we have a lot to learn about that. Personally, I have a lot to learn about that. We as a church, our denomination has a lot to learn, and we can improve in these areas. How should we engage? Should we prepare for a battle of ideas? Sharpen up on our apologetics. Read up on philosophy. Yes, some of us should, but not all of us are gifted in that way. I would guess that that the majority of congregations in America, the people sitting in the pews, the the businessman, the the woman who's working as a nurse or uh, who's working in her home, caring for her family, they would be petrified to have to go answer philosophical questions with an atheist. Many pastors would be. So, yes, that's an aspect for those gifted to do it. However, not all of us are equipped to answer the skeptic's philosophical questions. Some of us would be absolutely terrified and, quite frankly, wouldn't do a very good job in answering those questions. What is David doing? It's beautiful, really. He's simply praising God before those people. He's simply sharing with them what God has done for him. Now, everybody can do that. A young child who grasped the faith can talk to their friends about what God has done for them through Jesus Christ. Anybody. That should be basic for us. That should be easy for us to just share. What a glorious God we worship. And there's so many ways in which we can be thankful to God. David tells us simply to praise and thank God for His gracious deliverance and constant protection. For His truthfulness and covenant faithfulness to us. 
C.H. Spurgeon writes this in his commentary on this psalm. He says, In these days, when new religions are daily devised, and new gods are set up, it is well to know how to act. Bitterness is forbidden, and controversy is apt to advertise the heresy. What he means by that is if you, you go bullheaded and start bashing heads with people who oppose you, it's just it's going to make the situation worse, is what Spurgeon says. And oftentimes that is the case. So, bitterness is forbidden. Controversy is apt to advertise the heresy. The very best method is to go on personally worshiping the Lord with unvarying zeal, singing with heart and voice His royal praise. Do they, do they deny the divinity of our Lord? Let us the more fervently adore Him. Do they despise the atonement? Let us more constantly proclaim it. Praising and singing are our armor against the idolatries of heresy. Our comfort under the depression caused by insolent attacks upon the truth and our weapons for for defending the gospel. Faith, when displayed in cheerful courage, has about it a sacred contagion. Now, Paul carried this evangelistic weapon in his arsenal as well. Now, yes, he could engage the philosophers. He was very bold. He never hesitated. He wasn't shy. He he probably even enjoyed some of the intellectual debate. But I want you to turn with me to Acts 16. And see where he wields the sword of praise in his evangelistic and missional work. You remember the scene? Paul is with Silas preaching the gospel, and he's imprisoned. And we pick up on this story in verse 25. What does he do in prison? Verse 25 says, At about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And what happened? Because they were simply praising God. They weren't going through all of the errors of uh, the the Greek philosophers. They were just doing what David says he's going to do before the gods. What did it lead to? The Philippian jailer coming up hearing their prayers, hearing their words, and saying, what can I do to escape the judgment of God? What can I do to be saved? Now think about you if you're involved in uh, social media. How much time are you spending engaging in debate or simply praising God? Now what I see in social media is when we get into these debates... It it creates a spirit of contention and and bitterness and anger. It shuts minds to truth. Whereas praise attracts people. It's contagious, as Spurgeon says. So, we see David the evangelist. 
And his end, look at verse 4. What does he want to see? All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord. For great is the glory of the Lord. He's singing the praises of God, but what is he singing about? What is God doing? That brings us to our second point. The Lord keeps his promises. The psalm is saturated in the language of promise, of covenant. That's what we're talking about here. God covenants, He makes promises, He binds Himself to do certain things on behalf of His people and ultimately for His glory. Look at verse 2. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name. Why? For your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Now, these terms are important in the Hebrew language. They're words used to describe God's covenantal binding of Himself to His people. His steadfast love is His covenantal love. His faithfulness is His response to His promises. Look at verse 4. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth. He's referencing Scripture. The pagan kings have heard of God's covenants that He makes with the children of Israel and personally to David, which we will talk about here shortly. Verse 8, the Lord will fulfill His purpose for me. Well, what's His purpose? How does David know what his purpose is? Well, God explains it in terms of a covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you'll turn there, 2 Samuel 7. And I'm going to preach a, a, a separate sermon just on this covenant because it's so important in understanding the life of David. <clears throat> 2 Samuel 7 verse 8 This is where God makes this covenant obligation to David. Now, therefore, thus, this is 2 Samuel 8, 2 Samuel 7, sorry, 2 Samuel 7, verse 8. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. Speaking of his kingdom, what is God saying? David, I will, you want to build a house for me, but I am going to build a house for you. I am going to establish the kingdom of God through the Israelites during your reign. I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house." That's what David's talking about here. God has proven true to all of the promises 
that He has made to David. Now, God's promises were undeserved. He didn't uh, do something to cause God to reach out to Him and act upon Him in that way. Who is this David that we're talking about here? Well, if you remember the early parts of this sermon series, we were taught that David is the least of Jesse's sons. He's the youngest. Now, in ancient Near East culture, it was the firstborn son who was privileged and who would often inherit all of the the, the property and the, the blessings and the benefits of his family. David was the least. He's the the last on the the totem pole of who should have received the blessings. He's represented as one who's given a lowly task in his family. They send him off to the sheep pastures. He's the shepherd caring for the sheep, a menial, menial task. He is the most unlikely candidate for God to elect to be king and to make these promises to an unexpected choice. And David knows that. He mentions it in the psalm. Look at verse 6. For though the Lord is high, He regards the lowly, but the haughty He knows from afar. So David is very self-aware of his unworthiness. Are we self-aware of our unworthiness? Are we here at church when it would be very easy and understandable to make excuses not to come? Or are we listening online when it would be equally easy and understandable not to click on the link, not to watch the sermon, not to be fed by the Word, not to participate in church life? You could do that in these times pretty easily, right? Why do you hunger for the Word of God? Because God has done something for you. God has set His Spirit upon you. God has made promises to you to cause you to love Him. He's opened your eyes to see your sin and your misery so that you would flock to Christ and find in Him your only source of salvation. Now, David then talks in verse 7 about the difficulties he faced in life. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. As we've gone through the life of David, it seems counterproductive, doesn't it? God takes him from his humble position as a slave. He empowers him and anoints him to be king over Israel, over God's people. He gives him, uh, he he testifies to it or evidences it in his defeat of Goliath. That should never have happened. Only God with him makes that happen. And then what's the rest of David's life look like after Goliath? Hardship after hardship. He's in trouble. He's on the run. His his moral failure, his sin, uh, Absalom rebels against him. His family falls apart. What's going on? Though I walk in the midst of trouble, and that's the characteristic of his life, trouble, you preserve my life. What we need to understand 
is that when God makes a covenant with people, like He does with all of His children, the devil then becomes very active. You've got a target on your back. David has a target on his back. Job has a target on his back. Paul has a target on his back. The church has a target on its back. The devil is constantly seeking to subvert subvert the plans of God. He's actively working to undo the covenant relationships through deceit, Adam and Eve. The covenant of creation, through distraction. Let's get them not thinking about who they are and what they should be in the eyes of God and through difficulties. David knows this all too well. But you know, troubles, difficulties, the attacks of the devil are the necessary backdrop to God's covenant faithfulness. They are the proving ground of God's steadfast love. He promises protection and deliverance. Well, how are we going to know He's protecting and delivering us unless we're embroiled in some kind of difficulty? As we experience personally, as David does, and we all do to some extent, as we experience the deliverance by God from trouble, we fuel our engine of praise and thanksgiving. And the ultimate deliverance is is from our sin and the wrath of God. So the more you are aware of your own sinful heart the more you're going to praise God for delivering you from yourself. David's defeat of his enemies, Goliath. David's deliverance from the wicked Saul and Absalom. David's forgiveness for his own moral failures are experiences in his life of God's truthfulness, of God's covenant faithfulness, of God walking with him and caring for him. What you must understand is that our God keeps his promises. Our God keeps his promises. The third point I want to bring out is this, covenant promises and the Lord's Supper. How does this relate to us? We see it relating to David, but how does it relate to you and me sitting here today, this morning. Well, during the Lord's Supper, we participate in the cup of blessing. What's the cup about? What's its purpose in the Lord's Supper? What does it represent when we hold the cup up, when we participate in the wine of the cup? Well, the language our Lord instructed ministers to use in administering the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is this, and it comes from Luke 22, and I'm going to read this when we come to the Supper shortly. This cup, the Lord says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The new set of promises that I make to you, and I seal it in my blood. David had promises and they were kept. David was going to establish his house. His kingdom was going to be built. He was going to defeat his enemies and that happened. Now what is God promising you? 
What is He promising you in the new covenant? What is the encouragement you're to receive as you participate in the cup of the Lord's Supper? I want you to be aware of a couple of very specific things in our Lord and Savior's language. He says, this cup that is poured out for you, it is for you that Christ has done this. It is the new covenant purchased, secured by the blood offering of Jesus. It is done in His blood. Now, we're briefly going to look at the promises of the new covenant that are secured to us by Jesus. You can find them in Jeremiah 31, in Ezekiel 36, and in Hebrews chapter 8. What is God going to prove Himself a promise keeper to you for? Well, the first is this, a promise to make us holy, to make us pure, to make us do what He commands us to do. Isn't that something that you're thankful for? My goodness, I can't do it in my own power and in my own strength. God promises He will make me holy. He says, he says to us, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. In an extended version in Ezekiel 36, I love this, especially in its context, because what's going on in Ezekiel 36? The covenant people are under discipline because their hearts keep wandering from the truth. They keep breaking the commandments of God. So what does God do? He says, look, don't you see people? On your own, in your own strength, you can't do it. So look to me, because this is what I promise. Ezekiel 36, and I will give you a new heart, born again. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. Who's doing this? God. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. If God has saved you, this truth will be realized in your life. I want to hear that. Give me that cup of blessing. Give me something. Show me how God will do this for me. Give it to me. The second promise is this, a promise to be our God and to make us His people. He wants to associate with us. He wants to fellowship with us. That's why He's making us holy. So He can. You are a child of God through adoption. I will be their God, He promises, and they will be My people. He gives us a promise to reveal Himself. They shall not teach each one another, each one his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know Me, from the least of them to the greatest. He is going to give us, by His Spirit, an intellectual capacity to know this God who is shrouded in mystery. The only way you know God is when He causes you to know Him. He's mysterious. He's beyond understanding. But He promises for you to know Him. And then lastly, He promises to forgive and cleanse us from all of our sins. Do you come to church today feeling the burden of 
your heart, feeling the inconsistency of your walk with the Lord, the weakness of your faith. The Lord says, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. You are promised by God to be spotless, pure, and undefiled in His sight. I'm going to close with these words. 1 John 1, 9. God is a faithful promise keeper. He does as He says. Listen, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just. If we confess our sins, it's a matter of justice for God. He must act according to His promise. He is faithful and just. To what? To forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why do you come to the table today? Why do you participate in that cup of the new covenant? So you can receive the blessings of the new covenant. God is true to His Word. He is a faithful covenant keeper. Let us pray. Father, we come before You and we thank You. We thank You for Your promises because we know if it depended on us, we would make a mess of everything. The church would be a mess, our families would be a mess, and our own personal lives would be a mess. But Lord, as we think about David and his reflections and his constant proclamations of thanks and gratitude, he's doing that because you've promised him something and you have held true to your promise. Well, you've promised us even greater things than your King David, things that come to us through his greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you. And as we participate in this sacrament, may we be reminded of those promises And may we experience your keeping of them by by the activity of your Holy Spirit as we receive these things by faith. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.